Hey, hello friends, and welcome to this message which is specially handpicked to minister to you and to bless you. I am Pastor Lincoln Seranga, Senior Pastor here at Liberty Christian Fellowship in London. My passion is the pursuit of 100% answered prayer. If that sounds like a good subject to you, why don't you follow me at lincolnseranga.com and also find me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and other social media where you will be able to find other messages as well as find access to short courses, coaching opportunities, and more. God bless you as you listen to this message. Guys, the sovereign rule of God has been my, my argument uh, lately. Five, five points that I've made, and again, guys, it's, it's good to study, but sometimes things come to me, and I feel like sometimes I have very original ideas, and I try to check them biblically, and, and I wanted you guys um, to also be hearing me and challenging me where you feel, hey, Pastor, that is slightly weird. Um, let's see whether Derek has resolved himself. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so five aspects that I want everybody online to go away with. There are five, five elements in the working of the sovereignty of God. And I wanted to hear your response to that before we tackle today. God, his immutability, his omnipotence, his omniscience, his omnipresence, his unlimitedness, his infinity, his uh, incommunicable attributes, as they are called, uh, his majesty, his exaltedness, you know. If he was by himself, oh my goodness, he would just be untroubled. You know, but you see, the issue in life is not to be trouble free. If you want to be trouble free, you don't get married, you don't buy a car, you don't have children, you don't want, you don't desire food. The moment you dream, troubles begin because everything needs to be serviced, needs to be maintained, there has to be sacrifices made and, and all that kind of stuff. So, God by Himself decided, no, I must create, I will create. In the sovereignty of his will and in the counsel of his own wisdom, he has a plan. We don't even have a clue where this whole thing is going. But a creator must create. If he does not create, he's a coward. <laughs> really? And if he's brave enough, he must create free will beings. They should be able to choose. Otherwise, when you create robots, it shows you are insecure. Yeah, God is not insecure, he's not a coward, neither is he a bully or a manipulator, so he creates free will beings. But I've jumped a step. So number one is God. Number two, his eternal purposes, which can't, we can't say we fully understand. Other than the summary, the Bible says, the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. The ultimate goal of God is that everything that is in heaven is also copied and pasted into the created realm, into the physical created realm. That, to me, is the summary of what he wants to do. He is that secure. God <laughs> is so secure. He wants his glory to feel everywhere. And he wants us to rule and reign with him. It's like, are you sure? Why don't you just sit and, and feel your own power? No, God wants to participate with us in his own divinity. And then, 
So God, his purpose, number three, is free will, which I just touched there. And then once you enter free will, we end up with evil. Evil, whatever its source, shows up on the screen. And then time is my, my final argument. Time is the canvas. It is the field on which this whole drama plays out. Time is the canvas on which God paints the picture of his um, wisdom and purpose that in the end, uh, all things will be reconciled back to him in the fullness of time. But while we are going through time and through history, he rules in the mix of these five elements. He rules in the mix of them. He reigns supreme. He oversees, he orchestrates, and his purposes shall come to pass. But that, for some sovereignty teachers, means he is puppeting the whole thing. He's puppeting everything. Everyone is a pawn on his chessboard because the, the play is rigged. The game is rigged. And God is working his own purpose through because he's sovereign. I feel that that's a, a fairly uh, unfortunate description of sovereignty. So today I wanted us to touch one of the big ones, uh, which is the whole area of, of election and foreknowledge. And again, I know time flies, so um, we can't go too, too, too deep. But um, the Bible clearly shows that uh, we, uh, the believer is called an elect. We are elect. And uh, again, straight away, the sense is the uh, sovereignty language used in the Bible. I'm trying to find my verse here. Suddenly, everything is plain. <laughs> Ephesians 1.4. And... Um, I don't know. Uh, yeah, I'll be ducking like this so Marvin can show us. Ephesians 1, 4. It says, I don't know whether we can start uh, with verse 3. Can we start with verse 3 and see what that is showing? I'll spotlight this. Say, Blessed be the God of our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ. And verse 4. Just as he chose us in him, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Mm, that's one of the sovereignty verses. I feel that one is not very difficult, perhaps, to, to tussle with. But the sense is that looking at this verse, uh, the argument is this. You, 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 did not, you did not choose God. He chose you. Actually, it's there in Scripture. Doesn't Jesus say, you did not choose me. I chose you. And so in that teaching of sovereignty, it says, people do not come to the Lord by choice. <laughs> so in um, Calvin theo Calvinistic theology, they say, you do not choose God, he chooses you. It is called, um, uh, uh, Derek, you need to help me there because you, you, you are the, um, it is, what do they call it? Tulip, the tulip principles. Unconditional election. Unconditional election. Oh, is that the U of the tulip? It's so, the U of the tulip, yeah. Total depravity, unconditional election. Total depravity. Man is so sinful, he has no capacity within himself to choose God. Yes, he's dead. There's dead. It's like asking a dead body to sneeze or to clap or to do anything. Uh, so the whole thing of we were dead in our trespasses means... 
that we were actually spiritually irresponsive completely. And so God has to initiate the whole thing. He has to supernaturally resurrect you and then uh, set you up to virtually. He gives you the faith so that you may believe in him. So that is called unconditional uh, election. And then hell is limited atonement. Jesus did not die for everybody because that would waste his blood. He died for the elect because he knew them. So the others are not covered. They are not washed. <laughs> Jesus dies for the elect. No. Irresistible grace uh, and then perseverance of saints. Once you are saved, you can't lose it. Because you didn't start it, how can you end it? There it is. Um, now, it gets very interesting. Ephesians 2.10 is another one. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So the sense is that God even creates, not only does he choose us in Christ, he ordains our works beforehand. Yeah. All these are interesting election verses. And then uh, I think the big one uh, is... Um, uh, Acts 13, 48 is another big one. And then we'll go to Romans 9, 15. And then we'll, we'll just probably see what you, what you guys say. We don't have to, 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 to be too, too tidy here. Let's just flow, flow freely. Uh, so Acts 13, 48. Uh, are you there, Marvin? Now, when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life, believed. <laughs> you guys. <laughs> so there were people who were appointed to eternal life. And they are the ones who believed. So the sense is God elected them, so they had to believe. Um, um, and I throw a few others. The other one is Acts 16, 14. Tell us, Acts 16, let's see verse 13, Acts 16, 13 and 14. 16, 13. And so it says, And on the Sabbath day we went out of the city to the riverside where prayer was customarily made, and we sat down and spoke to the women who met there. Verse 14. Now a certain woman named Lydia heard us, she was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira, who worshipped God. And the Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. The Lord opened her heart. These are the big sovereignty verses. Uh, Romans 8, I'll just read this quickly. Verse Romans 8, 29. For those whom he foreknew, and this begins to resolve us, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn amongst many brethren, and whom he predestined also called, and whom he called, those he also justified, and whom he justified, those he also glorified. Let's start with the whole thing of foreknowledge. Foreknowledge. Andrew, you need to come in. Foreknowledge. What's your understanding of foreknowledge in the whole sense? Because what we're trying to resolve here is um, that uh, election is a, a product, is an outcome of foreknowledge. It is not a random act by which God just decides, 
that one is in, that one's in, that one's out, that one was because that I will read a, 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 a tougher verse to deal with. But the sense, the argument that I would personally uh, say is rooted in my own upbringing and training through Bible college is that foreknowledge is what creates pre uh, uh, election. Hmm. Yeah, so I mean, this is a very, it's a very interesting topic. Um, and it, it, it's, it's a powerful topic because the truth is, is that the sovereignty of God, and I think you tackling it is very key because many people don't know that they're always dealing with this question. You know, even though they might not say, oh, I'm dealing with the sovereignty of God. Um, yeah. So many people might not know that they're actually dealing with this scenario. But the reality is all of us, depending on how, where we put this theology in our head, determines the kind of Christianity really we ultimately will have. Mm. Um, but for me, I'd like to start off by saying before I start talking about foreknowledge, is I think God's power mm -hmm. is truly expressed mm. in the fact that he is able to, to, to allow his purposes to come forth in the earth while still maintaining everyone's free will. Mm. That's that, for me, shows how powerful he is. That's big, so, yes. Yeah, I don't have to touch anyone's free will. No one has to be a puppet. But I am so wise. I am so big. I am so above it all mm. that I, everyone can have their free will mm. and my purposes will still be at work in the earth. <laughs> That's I think that shows and gives God more glory. Because oh, yeah. there's, there's usually an attempt to try and fall back to the sense of God must be controlling everything if his purposes come to plan. But that's the point. And this is why God says in scripture, all things work together for the good. I don't care what the enemy throws at you. I don't care what life throws at you. I am so above it all that it will all work together for good. Mm. And, and I think that shows how powerful God is. So now when you come to the whole question um, of foreknowledge, um, I think the biggest mistake we have, and you, you say this quite um, well when you started your series, is that the problem we have with the sovereignty of God is we put God in our box and then we try and understand this whole concept of sovereignty. And that's the problem. Mm -hmm. Straight away, when you're sucking God into time, everything starts to fall apart. Yeah. Because God is not in time. And so when God says, I, when the Bible uses the term foreknowledge, it has to use that term because we're in time and we need a way to understand how God chooses things, right? Mm -hmm. But God is not sitting in time. God is right now present when I was born. He's present in this conversation. And he's present when I'm standing before him on judgment day all at the same time yeah and so straight away when we start talking about god for knows things and has chosen things many people get this confused many people get i believe confused god's foreknowledge with a sense of determination determinism in the sense of god because god foreknows something that means he must have determined it no it doesn't necessarily mean the same thing for example he says god says um in scripture you know you know this one it's a big election uh, uh, and sovereignty one as well is that is it, is it um, um, Jacob I have chosen? Isu I have rejected? Yeah. Mm. yeah? And it's like, well, who, did Isu even have a chance? You know? It, did he, and you did see, he, Paul, Paul is a problem because when he plays with that, hmm. he is making the sovereignty point. Hmm. And the way he tackles it is, that, uh, is as if Jacob had no, no say. Yes. Yeah, that's how he plays with the sovereignty language there. As if Isu had no, or Isu or Jacob had no say, yeah? Yeah. Yeah, no, so... Um, and, and, and the thing is, is that once you now step out of time and we have the scope view, the same viewpoint that God has, mm. is who do you choose? You choose those who have chosen you. And how, do, and how can I say this? How can I say this? Because 
Again, Jesus tells us a parable that gives us an understanding of how the kingdom of God is like. Do you remember that parable of um, when the, the, he, he sends out a call for the feast? Oh, yeah? yes. Mm. And, and he calls everyone. Who does he call? Everyone. He calls everyone. Mm. Everyone is called, right? But the Bible says that only few heeded the call and came, mm. right? And Jesus ends that parable and says, many are called, but few are chosen. But when you clearly read that parable, it wasn't selective choices and I like you, I don't like you, I like you, I don't like you. The call went out to everybody. Those who ended up being chosen are those who responded favorably to the call. Mm. So now God knows because he's out of time, everyone who will respond favorable to his call. Mm. Because remember, the foundation of his throne has to be righteousness and justice. He can't do anything that's not just and that's not righteous. He just can't. And so, I mean, I'm going on a bit here. I could carry on, but I want yeah. Pastor Derek to come in. But so I guess what I'm trying to say here is that just because God knows doesn't mean he is determined. The determination is our response. Mm. God knows our response because he's not in time. And therefore he seals us and says, you're my elect because I know you choose me. Because mm. I know you choose me. So I can, I'm not afraid to say before you're born, you are my elect. I hope that makes sense. It's beautiful. You put it well. Derek. Determinism, is that a word you are fairly familiar with? Yeah, I think that is where the biggest battle is between the um, Calvinist and the Armenian. Mm -hmm. it's, um, it's, it's, it's always troubling on the issues of um, determinism versus free will. But uh, like, I was just going to say, Salah, what else can I say? <laughs> I'm going to say beautifully. The only thing I can add is that people forget that God in himself is love. So if you look at God in the aspect of love, then you can't take choice out of the picture because if you truly love someone, you have to give them reason not to love you. Mm. Yeah. So, I mean, and if you don't have that, if you don't give them a choice not to love you, then you're actually creating robots. That's one. And we see play out very well in the book of Genesis when God puts the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I mean, they could have chosen any. They could have eaten the tree of life all their life and wouldn't have the issue of sin. But whatever choices is, it is, it is, it is put in, in scripture throughout. But I often say most people who understand this type of theology, which, you call, which they call the Calvinistic theology, and I'm not trying to bang down Calvinists because we're all Christian believers, but our way of thinking is slightly different. You'd have to understand it better from the formula tulip. So if you if you you'd have to interpret it through tulip for you to properly understand it because if man is totally deprived then obviously God would have to elect people because because and because he's elected people then definitely he's died for a few and because he has died for a few then definitely those few are the ones who will persevere until the end because why because his grace is irresistible so it depends it, it depends on how you interpret the bible if you interpret it through that then it will give you that result but some of these portions of scripture if you look at them they, they interpret themselves if you do good exegenesis it will tell you say for instance romans 8 we understand if you understand it from the context of the scripture paul is speaking to christian jews in rome he's not talking to the to the unbelievers mm -hmm. So when he's emphasizing the elections, he's encouraging them. Because why? Because the context is that Roma, the Christians in Rome are being persecuted. 
So he's in Corinth writing this letter. He knows Christians are, e are being eaten by lions and Colosseums, and he wants to reinforce and reassure them that, guess what? You may be going through this persecution, but God has your back, essentially, if I paraphrase. Why? Because he has elected you. So he's talking to Christians. It's a different thing if he was talking to a multitude of people and they did not know. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. It, it, it's just good Bible discipline that helps you interpret it. If you look at the predestination, scriptures is talking about predestination into the image of Christ. It's not telling you choice of heaven and hell. Yes, we're persistent to look like Christ. Still talking about Christians and still handing them into that place of sanctification or growth. So it depends on whether you want to put into scripture your beliefs mm. or just simply look at scripture and let it speak for itself. A very clear one that is so easy is the fact that for God so loved the world. So how would you interpret the world? Yeah, the world, because the word cosmos there is the whole world. It's, it, yeah, so for, but if I believe I'm elected, then I'm going to say it's the elect. The world is the elected. Love the elected, love the world, then. Yeah, so it's it's just it's it's just good Bible discipline that helps you understand that. Romans stuff, yeah. nine fifteen, yeah. Romans nine fifteen, and this is what it says. Why Marvin tries to find it? Um, Romans nine fifteen. For he says to Moses, "I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, yeah. and I will have compassion mm -hmm. on whom I will have compassion." So then, it is not about him who wills, yeah. nor him who runs, yeah. but to God who shows mercy. Yeah. How do you guys tackle that verse? Because the, it, point, the point seems, God is saying to Moses, and this is at that Genesis 30, uh, not Genesis, Exodus 34. Exodus, yeah. Moses says, show me your glory, and God said, yeah. I'll put you in a rock, I'll put you yeah. in a rock in the rock, and I'll pass yeah. before you. And yeah. he says, the Lord, the Lord, merciful, yeah. whatever. And he says, I will have mercy on whom I'll have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I'll have compassion. How do you reconcile that with free will, free choice of Christ, other yeah. than God decided yeah. who he's going to have mercy on, decided whom he's going to have compassion? Again, as I say, it's good Bible. It's, it's, it's what we call good Bible discipline. What is God talking to? Oftentimes, when I look at when I tell people to look at the context of Scripture, you need to understand what is the chapter say. It is bad Bible discipline for you to take out Scriptures and begin to interpret them outside the whole context. No one does that because remember that the Bible, say for instance, the Book of Rome, of I mean the the Book of Romans, it wasn't written in verses, chapters, and that. It's a solid book that is consistently understood throughout the context of it. So here at the particular point of time, what is Paul trying to tell the Jewish Christian versus the Gentile? And that is why he's speaking about the Jews in Exodus. He's trying to get them to understand that, guess what? The Gentile is engrafted in us. And you can see it through consistently through the book of Romans as he goes on and, and, and explains it. He's not trying to, um, to bring out the fact that God is choosing. He's actually trying to tell the Jewish people, guess what? If God decided to engraft the Gentile, it's God's choice. Mm. It is not, he's not talking about a choice of individuals going to heaven and hell. Why? Because as Andrew rightly said, God is just. Mm. Now, think about this way. If God was just and he says that, okay? Mm. If God has elected, yeah, say for instance in my household, if God has elected me to go to heaven, 
right? Essentially, by default of reasoning, then he has elected, the ones that are not elected are going to damnation, right? Yeah. That's my simple logic, right? So he's elected me, yeah? So definitely my wife will be going to hell, right? The day of judgment comes, I'm in front of God's throne, right? I come in and God is judging me according to the deeds, yeah? When my wife comes, she can tell, but God, you elected me for hell. <laughs> now, how does that inform the justice of God? Because some of these things, it, it, you don't need to be like a, you know, electronic engineer to understand the reason. Yeah. Same co context in which you put it will kind yeah. of but I think, I think, verify it. I think also, you know, the, the context of the, even the verse there, mm -hmm. I will have, it's God saying, listen, I will have mercy on who I have mercy on. I will have compassion on whom I'll have compassion on. So this is actually pointing to a nature, the way he makes decisions, right? Yeah. Okay. And so you can't just say, okay, that shows you God choose. No, no. You have to then go back and say, okay, who does God typically have compassion on? Who does God typically have mercy on? You know what I mean? And then you work through scripture and you realize God never contradicts again, never contradicts his justice or his, his righteousness in who he chooses to have mercy on or compassion on. Mm. And this is the point, because why does God choose? Do you think that God did not know, for example, yeah, that Saul would, not, would end up not sinning? Do you think that he didn't know that, right? But he still chooses him. Why? Out of his mercy and compassion. Because God wants to give Saul the opportunity to reject him. He mm. wants to give an opportunity. Why? So when Saul stands before God on judgment day, Saul will not be able to say, why didn't you give me an opportunity to be king? Are you with me? He mm. wants to say, no, no, I will give you the opportunity, even if the opportunity means you reject me because I am just. Mm. Mm. You see my point? And yeah. so God is always expressing an opportunity for our free will to be exercised. So when he when we stand on judgment day, no one will be able to accuse him. Everyone who is in hell, everyone who is in hell will be able to say, I'm justfully here. No one will be able to accuse God yeah. and say, I've been wrongfully put here. And this yeah. is to me, what it seems to signify, God is saying to Moses, this thing is going to be on my terms. Hmm. I will have mercy on my terms, like you are saying. You then have to reach, read through scripture to say, on what kind of people does God have mercy? For example, the Bible says, he resists the proud, yeah. the proud and gives grace to the humble. There you are. Yeah. And uh, that's my argument. So God is saying, uh, God could have said, I'll have mercy on everyone who is five foot tall. Who would have argued? You know? But he's saying, I'll have mercy on my terms. And these terms, like you're saying, are justice and righteousness. I'll have compassion. Leave it to me, Moses. Don't try and manipulate me. Don't think you can. I'm going to run the universe on my terms. I do not sit a committee to determine the grounds on which people are saved. I have determined it in my own counsel. So mm. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. You just watch me. I'll have compassion on whom I will have compassion. And so verse 16 continues in an interesting way and says, so then it must be of him. It is, it is not of him who wills. So will alone is not the point. Will without justice gets you nowhere, which is where the whole black issue is. is you can will all you want, but if the system is rigged, if the system is unjust, if the, if the ruler of the universe is unloving, you can will 
all you want, but there are no terms for mercy that are favorable. Mm. So that's the point I feel that Paul is saying, that ultimately, if God had not stretched out of his hand, there would have been no handshake, however much you had tried to find it, because it has to start from God. That's the sense of election, that it has to start from God. Everything must start from him, because, as I said at the beginning, all sin and fail short. It's an agricultural principle that once there is a diseased animal, the whole herd has to go. Yeah. Mm. Now, should, should the Redeemer, because God is almighty, is not like a farmer, decide I'm going to salvage, on what terms will he salvage? He says, I will do it on my terms. Mm-hmm. And he says it's going to be on mercy and compassion, but those will be on hidden virtues you don't know. Because... <laughs> Like you're saying, when you look at Jacob and Esau, honestly, you choose Jacob. I mean, you choose Esau. Esau is hardworking. He is militant. He gets up every morning, goes hunting. This other boy is intense. You know, he looks lazy and laid back. And then he turns out to be slightly weird. He twists things. You feel like by election, I choose Jacob. But God is saying, no, you will get confused because no, you cannot see the heart. I, the Lord, search the hearts of men. And so when I show compassion and mercy, I have seen something you haven't seen. And this takes me to the other point, because then it says, um, God shows mercy. For the scripture says, O Pharaoh, and this is the point we made earlier concerning Pharaoh. It says, for this very purpose, I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth, Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills, he hardens. And we talked about the whole principle of hardening. Mm -hmm. The truth is that after the fall of man, God had mercy on Abraham, ultimately. And Abraham becomes the redeeming root of the earth. That is where the mercy and grace of God is being incubated. All the other nations are just in waiting. (laughs) This is because God, again, in love, is saying, I must find a heritage in the earth. So all the other nations are just uh, marking time because there's no redemption in them. Even Israel has to fight uh, and find Messiah finally. Retrospectively, Christ dies and goes and preaches, even retrospectively, as the Bible says. But it's this weird reality that away from Israel, there's no salvation in the earth. Therefore, all the other nations are raised to orchestrate and wait. We are all waiting. So I I think about my own people in my village, in my country, in my tribe. What were we existing for during that whole time of Israel? There was no revelation of Christ. There was no revelation of salvation. The spotlight was on Israel because God chose how to demonstrate his mercy. He had to choose a nation, make them a band, a, a, a nation of priests. He extract a lineage. We lose the 12 tribes, by the way. We are left with two that form Judah. And out of Judah, finally, we get a Messiah. Now salvation has come to the earth. So the others are just um, like in a movie when when people pass the camera. (laughs) They are just paid to decorate the environment because you are not at the core of the story. The core of the story is Israel. Therefore, now, if God orchestrates to perform signs and wonders in Israel, I mean in Egypt, and causes causes, uh, all kinds of miracles to break out, and and he does not release grace to Pharaoh, so that a story is written. You understand 
where God is coming from. But that's the point that I see here. It does not take away free will. It does not I take think, away. And I think, and I think that's the amazing point: is mm -hmm. that God maintains in all of these scenarios mm -hmm. justice and righteousness. He maintains in, in like when he says, as, as you put it, even when you did the sovereignty of God earlier on, that when he hardened Pharaoh's heart, the Bible clearly shows that the hardening of heart in itself can be a judgment. You know, mm -hmm. it's a judgment against evil people where and, and god is saying you've you you have stacked up so much evil in your life that your judgment is you will not be able to repent why because god is merciful most of the time not most of the time whenever you repent god usually will forgive you he was always willing he's merciful long-suffering he's all those good things and so sometimes the judgment literally becomes the hardening of the heart because mm. you have stacked up so much evil and you made such a beautiful case about about pharaoh and how could he not know who joseph was and the redemption Joseph had brought to the, all of Egypt. In fact, Pharaoh was in the possession of wealth because mm. of Joseph acquiring all this land because of his, his literally his genius mm. in managing the scenario. So there's no way Pharaoh would not have known Joseph. He was literally having a hardened attitude. And so God says, your judgment is the hardening of heart. And so even in that, even in that verse, God is literally being faithful to his justice and righteousness. And this is the beauty about scripture. It never contradicts each other. And that's what many people get so confused is because they start to say, but this contradicts that and that contradicts this. If it's contradicting, then you're not reading it right. You're not interpreting it correctly. And that's why many times um, when you, you get all these different um, sects within the Christian faith, they're clashing is because they're not reading scripture correctly because if they did, it will all fit together beautifully. And, and I think that's, 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 that's how it should work. Right. Uh, uh, I have a question for Derek. Uh, yeah. Derek, uh, can I, I can answer actually, Marvin? Ephesians 2.8. Ephesians. Ephesians 2.8, I think it may be the one. I hope I'm quoting right there. Because in total depravity, yeah. uh, for those that are listening to us, total depravity is a description of how so dead man is that he has no capacity to respond to God. Yeah. 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 So for by grace you have been saved through faith. Yeah. And that not of yourselves is the gift of God. What yeah. is the gift? Is it? Because the thought out of this verse is God gives you the faith so that you may believe in him. And so those who have not believed in him, he hasn't given the faith. Mm -hmm. And what confuses me, then he gets very angry with them because he did not give them the faith. Yeah. He sends them to destruction because they didn't choose him. <laughs> but then I think the question is asking yourself. Uh -huh. Yes. Is in asking yourself, how does faith come? Yes. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. That's why when Romans 10 talks about the, the gospel, that's why you have to hear the gospel. Mm. So it's the gospel that ignites your response. Mm. Why? Because it births faith in you. Mm. So that it goes back to the, how you're interpreting it. Because if you interpret it, because we believe, obviously, I mean, um, our many believers to, tend to believe that um, man has not completely, totally, like the way he's not totally deprived. He has a sense of at least responding or giving choice. Yeah? But 
but if you look at but if away from that understanding and you look at the whole area of faith the bible is very clear it says faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of god that is why when romans 10 is talking about the gospel it the gospel truth it talks about the the hearing of it if, you know and then it it only it puts in the hearing of it the response of it and you accepting him mm. if you look at romans 10 yeah. So the question is, how is that faith buffed in you? So it's the gospel. If you had the faith outside the gospel, that would be different. Mm. But everyone who comes to the Lord must hear the gospel. So the power is in the gospel. And it is what buffs faith. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, do you want to supplement anything there, Pastor, Pastor Andrew? The, because uh, sometimes the argument is that, you know, as you've heard, that God gives you the faith. So that, that verse, that Ephesians, Marvin, just show it I again. Think, yeah, if, if we put it up. What, uh, what, do, what in, your, in your understanding is the gift there? For by grace you have been saved through faith. You know, because listen, the, 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 like, the, the way I always like to read this verse, because I spent a long time on it at one point in my faith, because I was trying to really, truly understand it. So I put it in a different terminology that I could understand it. So he says, for by grace, you have been saved. Yeah. Mm -hmm. By grace. So what saves you? Grace. Yeah. Through faith. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. Right. So what actually saves you is grace, but grace works a specific way through faith. So mm -hmm. another way God put it to me, it's that your thirst has been quenched by the water through the pipe. Does that make any sense? Okay. So in other words, it's that what actually saves us is God's grace, right? That's what God gives. God gives grace and that's what saves us, right? But what actually, how does grace come to us? It comes through faith. And you see therein lies, I think, the, the, the key, right? Mm. God's response in this scripture is grace for salvation. Right. Our response is faith. Mm. You see what I'm saying? Mm. So many people read that verse and it's like, God gave you the faith. No, no, no. That's not what it's saying. It says what God gives is the grace to save us. Mm. That's the gift. No mm. one can earn that, but it works a certain way, right? It works through faith. So our only response is faith. Remember when they came to Jesus and it says, what should we do to, um, to, to, to work the works of God and blah, blah, blah. So he said, only believe, yeah. you know, the one whom he sent. The yeah. only response God is looking for, for from humankind is the response of faith. That's all he's looking for. Once he sees that in you, he does the rest. Right. So That's the, what God is looking for. The, the sense then is that man has got the capacity to believe. I believe, of course. I, I, I definitely believe so. M man, oops. Sorry, I think I, I touched mute, unmuted you, Andrew. Unmute yourself. Um, so, guys, this is so big for me. Uh, and I make the argument, when you look at Jesus ministering on the streets, a centurion comes mm -hmm. and says to him, you don't need to come to my house. Just spend, send the word. This is not a worshipping Jew. We're talking about a Roman soldier. And Jesus says, great is your faith. Mm -hmm. And he says, he's a, Jew, he's a, he's a centurion. Yes. Then we have a Syrophoenician woman. Jesus even tells him, you are a dog, virtually. I can't take the children's food and give it to the dogs. 
And she pushes on and Jesus says, I have not seen faith like this in Israel. Mm. I think it's the other way around. I think it's the, gen, the, 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 um, the centurion and he says, I've not seen faith like this in Israel. He even dares to compare Israel with a Jew, with a Gentile. So faith seems to be a, a, a capacity man has to respond to God, to respond to the grace of God. Like the Bible says that when a tree is cut down, at the scent of water it shall germinate. It's almost like since man fell at the scent of God's grace, mm-hmm. like you're saying, he will respond. We should be able to respond to, respond to the grace of God in faith to be saved. I think, I think that um, the honest truth is the ability to have faith in God's justice and mercy and wisdom. He's actually put that within every human capacity and heart. Otherwise, he would not be able to judge us for not responding correctly. Mm-hmm. We already must have within us the ability to respond in faith, right? Another example you find in the New Testament is Cornelius. Remember Cornelius, right? Yeah. The Bible says that this guy was giving alms and his alms, his sacrifice came up to the Lord. The guy wasn't saved. Do you know what I mean? This, this script is confusing. And it's like, so God literally has to send him an angel and says, listen, you got my attention. You need to get saved, <laughs> right? So he sends him an angel and says, the angel can't preach the gospels because angels don't have the right to, right? So he says, you need to call for a man called Peter. He'll tell you how to get saved. I find this scripture so interesting. Mm. I find it interesting because it shows you that there's people in the earth who are doing things in response to this substance called faith. And God knows, and the scriptures cannot be broken. I'm not saying there is another way to, 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 the, to, to heaven, no. Because in that instance, Cornelius had to give his life to Jesus. But mm. my point is, is that his response of faith in the earth caught God's attention. And so my point is, I believe that faith is actually something supernaturally that God has given to every man and every man has the capacity to have faith in it. That's why when we stand before God, God will have the right to judge us because he says, I gave you this capacity innately to respond to me. How did you use it? Wow. Yes. Uh, Does the scripture regarding compassion and mercy I will have compassion on whom I'll have compassion. I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy. Is this speaking of God's foreknowledge or yeah. is it speaking on his capacity? That's, that's a good question. I mean, I was actually going to say that a lot of people mistake God's foreknowledge. You know that misinterpretation? Most of the scriptures God is talking are really inclined to the, for, for his foreknowledge, his ability to know events. Say, for instance, he knows the elect. Mm. So God knows those who are going to give their lives to Christ. Mm. But he does not interfere with their choices. That's where the difference is. So mm. a lot of our interpret. So we, I mean, I would, under, I would interpret the scriptures in the understanding that, yes, he foreknew, he knows. And therefore, he is not. And whereas other people think that he has, he has determined these events and then he has, you know, in, 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 he has kind of intervened in them so that they have this particular response. So it is the two, it's the two different um, positions most people would actually argue. But to answer our question, I believe it's a foreknowledge. It's compassion. Yeah, I, I think that there's a bit of both actually reflecting on that. Yeah, I totally understand that. Uh, but the sense is, uh, foreknowledge in, in a sense is a capacity. <laughs> it's, 
God knows all things. And like Andrew said, when you try to describe, um, um, when you're dealing with the infinity, the language becomes difficult because, guys, can I submit something? And I don't know how, whether I'll confuse everybody here. But you see, there are three uh, perspectives to time. Prospective, retrospective, yeah, and what I would call transcendent. Prospective, I look forward. So the word foreknowledge is a, a prospective word. It's like God stands in January and sees December. It's a, it's a, it's a prospective word for time. Then there is retrospective time, looking backwards. Like when you use the word redeem, it's like something happened, somebody got lost, something got lost. So God elects, that's the perfect prospective word, uh, or rather foreknows, that's a prospective word. He redeems, that's a very retrospective word. But then he elects, that's a very so, uh, panoramic word because he looks across history. So, Salvation can be looked at from three perspectives, and neither of them should confuse us. Now, the, the weird thing is this, is that much of the Bible, many times in the Bible, God deals with his people with prospective language. It's as if he literally, I don't even know whether I can say, when, when, sometimes in the Bible God speaks in time, as if he's, he himself is trapped in time. And like he, For example, when he shows up in, in Eden, and says, Adam, Adam, where are you? Did you eat of the tree? <laughs> Did you eat of the tree that I told you not to eat of? It's like, wait a minute. I thought you are omniscient. Mm. Yeah, then the Bible says, and the Lord regretted that he had made man. Mm -hmm. And it's like, whoa, that is a very time word. It's like God did not expect that. And now he's sorry for something he did. But then another verse says, the Lamb of God was slain from the foundation of the world, meaning before he created, he made a redemption pro pro plan because he foresaw the fall of man. And so you need to be very humble when you are dealing with the Bible because if you trap yourself on one verse, you can get doctrinally confused because sometimes it is right, it's written with God in time, sometimes it's written with God outside of time. And you need to understand that most of the relational verses of the Bible are written in time. So God's heart is broken. Mm -hmm. God is disappointed. And I sometimes argue that um, we, 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 we talk a lot about his omniscience and his foreknowledge. But imagine if you, are, if you got married and your wife has foreknowledge. I think she does, Pastor Ellis. Sorry. <laughs> I don't know about your one, but my one does. So when you, talk, when you tell her, I love you, honey, I saw that coming. <laughs> oh, I brought a surprise. No, I saw it. It's like, this relationship is so dead because I can't surprise you. I can't delight you. And so the Bible says Noah presented an offering and the Lord smelt it. He said, does God need to wait for the offering? But, so relational language in the Bible is written in time. Mm. It's God, I want to propose to you that when it comes to us and in his love relationship with his people, he doesn't know. 
he chooses not to know. And to me, that's a clash between omniscience and omnipotence. That God has the capacity as an omnipotent God to decide what he will see and what he will not see. It's a philosophy. So that then the offering is beautiful. The, the, the sacrifice is a surprise. And God is saying, wow. And the Lord was pleased. How was he pleased when he was seeing it all through? <laughs> so you find that this amazing language in which God, as he did in Christ, narrows himself almost in knowledge so that he can have intimacy, you know, with man at, at a very ground level. And so you have God being surprised, God being delighted. There are a couple of other questions here. We should be closing soon. Um, <laughs> can one lose their salvation? Yeah, there was also another question I thought was pretty good. Mm -hmm. uh, says, what about people who lived in areas where there is Christianity, Christian persecution and have not been able to hear the gospel? I thought that was a good one as well. Yeah, that's a, that's a good one. So what's your answer to that? Uh, for people who did not get a chance to hear the gospel. You don't want to. You, you want to know my answer past all to that. <laughs> no, I've got to Romans one. Romans one clearly puts it. Hit us with Romans one. Romans one. Pastor Derek. <laughs> Romans one. He has he has revealed himself through creation. Uh huh. And that, that's the same question people ask um, our forefathers who are not in Israel. You know the Sekabakas. What what chance did they have when they died? Christ was not in Africa then. He was, he was in a particular area. So how is that? So we, we always argue those, those particular scriptures from the, from the one from the sense of morality, because remember morality, we are moral beings. We have a sense of morality. Morality simply means the sense of right and wrong, uh, which we actually see in scripture before the actual coming of the law and the covenant. And then as well, we have Romans 1, which talks about um, for the invisible, Romans 1.20, and it says, for the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his internal power, yeah, mm -hmm. and, and Godhead, so that you have no excuse. So when you look at a plant and you look at a flower and you see all these different species, when you look at the human eye and the complexity of it, it needs to lift you up in adoration to God. That is why it's crazy when people say, I can't worship. Because every single time you look at God's creation, it just causes an, an, an awe about God and it just causes you to just worship you. So you're without excuse because God through these things has revealed himself. That would be my answer to that. Yeah, and also, I mean, you know, the Bible talks about before the law was introduced, you know, we were not judged by the standard of the law, you know. So th that scripture opens up the concept of being judged Roman, by... His... Romans 2.12, actually. Romans 2.12, Marvin, you should show that as one of as we begin to learn. Uh, that's an important one because you're quoting it and I, I just Googled it. Yeah, continue and make the point. Marvin's going to show. There it is. For as many as have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. Mm -hmm. Yeah? And as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. And I think the point that I'm trying to make is that the standard to which the Jewish nation, to which Christians are held to, because we do know the truth, is not the same standard to which these others are. But there is the standard of consciousness, which is basically 
God has been revealed in the earth. And what do you do with that understanding? Mm -hmm. um, but in saying that, I believe, and I firmly believe this because, as I said, all scripture cannot be broken. I believe that Jesus is the way. I hands down believe that. And I don't believe there is another way to eternity and eternal life. So the question then becomes, what is going on? How then can these scriptures be true, but Jesus still remain the way if somebody dies when they haven't even technically heard Jesus, right? Mm -hmm. um, for those who are pre-Christ, well, the Bible says he went into hell and preached the gospel. Could it be the Kabakas and all those people were there? <laughs> and he made an altar call. He made an altar call. <laughs> all those who chose to accept, accepted him. We, we really have no idea to know, you know, but, but I know this, Jesus is the way. Number two, how about for all of those now who are currently in Muslim countries or in other countries where they've literally never heard the gospel presented in a way that they can accept him? I think there's stuff that I don't, because I, 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 I have no proof of it. All I know is that I know God's nature. I know he's just, mm. and I know that he's loving, and I know that he's righteous. I know his nature, and I know that he desires that no man will perish. So mm. I know that he will go to extreme lengths to make sure people are saved. Mm. I know he will do that. But I've heard of crazy stories of people who have come back. Um, I mean, one of them was in Cormac who came to our church. Uh, Pastor, oh, you remember him? Ian McCormack, yes. Yeah. yeah, who came to our church. And, and, and I think it's him who helped us to coin the phrase tunnel salvation. <laughs> yeah. Where literally this guy is dying. And in the midst of him dying, the Lord is leading him through a sinner's prayer. And he said that if he had died at that moment, his mother, or is it his grandmother, I forget which one it was, would have actually believed that he had gone to hell because mm. he had rejected God in every single way. And so he literally begins a journey of giving his life to, to Christ while he's in the process of dying. And so all we see here in the natural is he died without knowing the Lord. But I believe there's many people, we're going to get there and say, how the heck did you get here? <laughs> you know? and, and, and the mercies of God are going to be revealed But I know this, God is love He desires no man to perish But Jesus is always the way He's always yeah. the way And so yeah. how God reconciles all of that It's in his infinite wisdom yeah. And I guess we'll be wait to be surprised Yeah, there's levels of mystery there That we, we can't really know But like you testify I've also had stories of people Who had completely rejected the gospel uh, It's just that these people come back and uh, they are spared death. But I, a lady I know had, who, who experienced a car accident, and she had completely given hell to people who preached the gospel to her. But she says in her last moments of conscience, she said, as you die, everything becomes focused. Everything narrows down to this one thing, Jesus. And she said, as she was passing out, Jesus, if you can find it in your heart to forgive me, Please forgive me. And then she lost her consciousness. When she woke up, this is what she said. She said, I woke up a new creation. <laughs> she said, I knew when I woke up, I was born again. So she did not die. But it, like you're saying, it makes you wonder how it is that God will deal with nations that have not known. They may not have had the gospel purely. They may not have had a proclamation. But we don't know what happens in the, in the valley of the shadow of death, in the tunnel, whatever you want to call it. We don't know how the witness of the one who was slain before the foundation of the world, we don't know how that witness comes through history. Because for all we know, the Bible says Abraham saw him. So Abraham saw Christ before Christ was manifested. 
It seems like Noah, I mean, Enoch walked with God in ways we don't understand. So there could be a witness that we don't know about that God will still require uh, that those that did not hear the preaching of the gospel will be judged away from that knowledge. Perhaps that is all speculation. But like you're saying, God is just and we shall know when we get there. Yeah. Thank you guys for a good time. I think I'll let it go there. I hope, guys, you have understood why we went there. Uh, there is still a lot of questions we have not answered. Can a person lose their salvation? We had, I have had sessions, we have been meeting with a group of pastors for four weeks because one of our pastors in that network of FUMU, a fellowship of uh, Ugandan uh, ministers in the United Kingdom, and they look at me as an apostolic figure. So they, they ask me to deal with this because it's, it's running amok. Once saved, or is saved. Because yeah. if God gives you the, the salvation, if he gives you the faith, then who are you to lose it? You can't. You did nothing to gain it. You, did not, you can't do anything to lose it. And we had a huge debate. What I find um, is that uh, people don't want to change their belief concerning yeah. these things. And uh, our brother was gung-ho on, on con contain, continuing to contest. Uh, one saved or is saved. It is mathematical. It's a deductional thinking because the verse yeah. is not in the scripture. But it's taken from um, Ephesians 2.8 because yeah. it, it's salvation is a free gift. And how can you lose, lose something what, which is free? And I say exactly that. When I, somebody gives me free, it doesn't mean I can't lose it. Uh, I have to steward it which is why the Bible work, it says, work it out with fear and trembling. Um, it is not God who loses you when you lose the salvation. Salvation is secure on God's side, completely secured. And the, the verses they all quote show God's part in securing your salvation. Yeah. The failure is never on God's side. It is on our side because, again, grace is there. It is free. It's available. But it is faith. Your response. Yeah. And the Bible, Paul says, judge yourself and see whether you're still in the faith. Yeah. So it is not judge yourself and see whether you're still in the grace. No, the grace is there. But people walk away. And uh, we have testimonies of guys we worked with and served with, godly men who are full of the spirit and prayerful. And then something happened. And it's not necessarily about even how much they sin. But there's a point where you withdraw faith. Pastor L, yeah. mm. I like to put it as you cannot lose your salvation. You lay down your salvation. <laughs> Literally lay it down. Yeah. And it's I, was going to say, I was going to say Hebrews 6. Mm -hmm. How would they deal with Hebrews 6 chapter? Okay. Hebrews that. chapter number 6. I'll tell you, they have a way. They, they, they have Hebrews a, chapter they, number 6. <laughs> they how, how? Verse 6. Read into everything and change it back to something else. Ah. That, that would be a very difficult one because it surely clearly shows the experience of the believer, including the self, including experiencing the Holy Spirit with the sin. Let's read that and close. For, yeah, for, Hebrew. It, it would be, I, I, I would greatly respect the person who deals with Hebrews yeah. 6. <laughs> Start a little earlier. Go to what? 5 or 4? For it is impossible. Yeah. So we can't see the screen. Let's so. read this. Um, for it is impossible for those who have been enlightened, that sounds like saved, mm -hmm. and have tasted the heavenly gift, it has come by grace through faith, they didn't earn it, and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit, whoever does not have the Spirit does not belong to God, continue, 
and have tasted the good word of God <laughs> and the powers of the age to come, the kingdom of God, eh? if they fall away to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. Yeah. Uh, continue. Actually, verse 7 is good. Uh, because for the earth which drinks in the rain, that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. That's an important one. When the earth drinks in rain that has come upon it, which is cultivated and receive it and brings forth fruit, it receives a blessing from God. Verse 8. Um, but if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected. Mm-hmm. And near to be cursed. That's where they come in, my friend. They said they are not cursed. They are near to be cursed. Whose end is to be burned. It is the cursed one, they say, whose end is to be burned. These ones are just about got to be burned. But they survived. <laughs> <laughs> now, this is where the problem. That's bad exogenesis again. It's bad discipline. That's why... <laughs> I've noticed that a lot of people who bring up some of these arguments just need to be, you know, one thing I always tell people, the Bible is very simple. It's never been designed to be complicated. I mean, the writers wrote it for market people who understand that level. Yeah. So when people try to make it like a, a chemistry book. Too deep and too complicated. I get worried. It's simple. It's very simple. <laughs> Yeah, my, my argument is always this. First, the, what, the first principle in reading the Bible, just read it as it is. Don't, don't interpret it. First, read it. And just <laughs> don't begin to complicate and say, no, 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 it, it could have meant it. First, read it in its simplicity. First thing. And then, of course, there are some difficulties. After you've read it in simplicity, it's still confusing. That's when you go into grammatic interpretation you go into historic interpretation, you go into cultural interpretation, you go into uh, contextual application. And so that's how the hermeneutics, the science of Bible interpretation works. But initially just read it because it was written by simple men in a simple generation. They didn't have lexicons and, thes- and thesauruses. Yeah, the, the, and, yeah, the, uh, the whole, pro- the whole prom- premise of this one saved or is saved sits on this one concept, right? You can do nothing to earn salvation, therefore you can't do anything to lose it. To lose it, yes. Very simple. But that's the mistake, is because they make the concept of grace being a gift, meaning you did nothing to earn it. But that's not what the scripture says. Remember what we said? It's that it's faith that allows grace to flow. Mm. And faith is our response. So if we lose faith, that's why the Bible says fight the good fight of faith. The, The subject is always about faith. We, whatever is not done in faith is sin. You know, without faith, it's impossible to please God. So if you lose your faith, can you still be saved? No, you cannot. Mm. You cannot. So, faith, here, faith here is not believing for a shirt or, a, or a, a job. Faith is this dynamic, miraculous thing that your heart can produce, which makes God's head turn. Mm-hmm. And when you lose that, no one can, can help you. <laughs> no seminar. <laughs> That's what I think Paul is saying. It's impossible to restore. It, it's, no one can minister that to you. 
because it's supposed to be spontaneous. And now you, you had it, you tasted all these kingdom experiences, and then you, you dropped it, you fell away. The Bible says you fall away from it. And now it's impossible to restore you. Yeah, so guys, let's close it here.